0: work, and he's got his messages ready, and he really loves doing those, right? And you can imagine how that must feel. To put in all the work that he puts in, he has an absolute joy, and he loves sharing that, right? He loves being able to dispense that information. So uh, he said, why don't you just do a one-off, or a bump-out, as we typically call it? And so I was praying about what we might look at this morning, and I was thinking about Thanksgiving coming up. And I thought, well, what if there's a Thanksgiving theme that we could maybe look at in Scripture? And I started flipping through the Psalms. And I'm not talking about a heavenly voice from the clouds or anything like that. But I was kind of looking through some Thanksgiving Psalms and flipping through and reading some and skimming some. And I felt like the Lord said, why don't you take a look at Psalm 118? Now, I don't know anything about Psalm 118. But he said, why don't you take a look at Psalm 118? So I started looking at it, and I thought, wow, what a neat What a neat psalm of thanksgiving and praise and a call to worship because of God's goodness. And I started to see in there that there's a lot of neat quotes that we find in the New Testament about the Messiah. And so I started digging into that and not unlike any of our messages got in a little over my head. So we won't have a a perfectly comprehensive Absolute presentation of Psalm 118 this morning, but we'll make our way through it I think we could probably take two, three, four weeks on something like this But uh, we'll make our way through it this morning And I have to be honest, I was looking at the Lord and I said Man, are you sure you want to do 118? I felt like he said, well you could do 117 It's like what, four verses? Two? And right after that He said Be thankful that I didn't give you Psalm 119. (laughs) I said, okay, Lord, 118 sounds good. Let's do it. So as we get into this psalm this morning, uh, I'll remind us, many of you were with us when we went through a psalm series previously. And when we went through that series, one of the things that was important for us to do as we looked at some of those psalms was to also talk about some of the structure and some of the more technical aspects that we can see in Hebrew poetry. And I'll try to remind us of some of those this morning and maybe look at a few of those as we go through this. But some of those things that you might want to be looking for and remember as we go through this are things like synonymous parallelism. You guys remember that term, the synonymous parallelism? That oftentimes, in Hebrew poetry, you'll see a truth that is stated in a verse, and then right after that, you'll see that truth kind of reiterated, but in a slightly different way. So we'll see that quite a bit in this psalm. You'll also see a a contrasting parallelism for a moment, where the author is highlighting a particular truth, but he does it by making two contrasting statements that point to that same truth. We'll see some word pictures in here. We'll, we'll see an image of bees and thorns, and we'll certainly see the image of the cornerstone that the builders rejected. There's some rhythm. This psalm has a lot of really interesting uh, rhythmic things. We won't get into all of it this morning, but most of the verses, as I mentioned, are sort of two parts. But you'll see that verses two, three, four uh, are like a singular punctuated statement. And then you'll see that verse 12 has like three parts to it. So the author does some interesting things with the rhythm and then breaking that and then coming back to that. Um, Something else that you might notice is that the psalmist's audience changes a little bit. You'll see sometimes that he's addressing his peers, his fellow countrymen, Israel or the nations or the world. Sometimes he'll address his enemies and sometimes he'll be speaking to God. And of course, one of the last things that we'll be seeing in this psalm that's not unlike any other psalm that we looked at is attributes of God, right? Hebrew poetry is just full of highlighting these truths about God, the character of God, and attributes of God. And so we'll see this idea of God's loving kindness just being repeated, God's goodness being repeated, the fact that it is everlasting, that the Lord's hand is righteous, and that the Lord is salvation. We're going to see a lot of those themes, and attributes coming through in this psalm. So it's going to break down into about four or five sections. They're not real hard stops. But the first section this morning I want to look at is verses 1 through 4. And what we're going to see here in verses 1 through 4 is we're going to see a clear message and a clear call to give thanks to God. This psalmist, this author, we don't know who it is. Many suspect that it's likely David uh, because there's a very military theme of being Delivered and 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 receiving salvation from the Lord, from his enemies. So it could be David, but we don't know for sure. And what he says, verses one through four, is this call and this plea to give thanks to God. He says, "Give thanks to the Lord for He is good; for His loving kindness is everlasting." Oh, let Israel say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. Wow. He's really reinforcing that, isn't he? He's reminding us, he's reminding his audience that the very nature of God is that God is good. It is his essence, right? Right? And his loving kindness, you have heard us refer to this repeatedly here on this platform and in this space, is his covenant loyalty this is a great way to describe God's loving kindness. His covenant loyalty and his faithfulness to his those that he loves. He has no end. It cannot be measured, his loving kindness. So therefore, give thanks to the Lord. Praise the Lord because he's good and he's faithful. Right Now, We mentioned these shifts. Look at the audience that he is sharing this with. In verse 2, he says, Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. This is a general plea or call to God's people to praise God, right? God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world, not because of anything that they had done, but because of who he is. He said, this is going to be my people. That is certainly a reason to worship and give thanks, isn't it? When God calls you out of all the nations of the world and says, I love you and you are my people, I am setting you apart, I'm consecrating you for me. Wow, what a great reason to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Verse 3 Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. So the psalmist identifies the Levitical priesthood as an audience also as a people group that should be giving praise to God and giving thanks for his goodness. And we might say, well, well hold on a second here. Didn't he already say, let oh Israel, let all of Israel Well, doesn't the house of Aaron doesn't the priesthood include Israel? Well, yeah, it does. But I think it's akin to the way Paul writes to Timothy when he's talking about the qualifications for elders and deacons. When he says, they need to have these kinds of standards, these kinds of qualities, these characteristics. Well, I think the general assumption is that that should be true of all believers, right? That should be true of everybody who is called by the Lord. But it's a non-negotiable for those people in those positions, And I think we see something very similar here. That yes, the call and the plea is to all of Israel, give thanks to God because he is good. But he specifically turns his attention to the house of Aaron and says, Priests, Levites, you especially need to do this. Because God is good, you need to give thanks. It's non-negotiable for you. And then verse 4. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. Now the psalmist directs his attention and his call and his plea to all who fear the Lord. Anyone who recognizes Yahweh as the creator, as the God of the universe, the preeminent. All who are far off and yet have seen the God of Israel and say that is the one true God. God has always made a way to him, even for Gentiles, even in the Old Testament. He's always made provision for Gentiles to be in a covenant relationship with him if they so desire. Think about, think about Rahab. Right? Remember what Rahab, remember her, her opinion, her position after watching The Israelites have victory after victory after victory out there in the countryside. And when they got to her city, she's like, man, I know that your God is the real deal. And I want in. Not because I'm necessarily scared for my life, but because I believe he is the one true God. I want in. Remember when we looked at um, Ruth? Naomi said, go home. Go back to your people. Ruth wasn't Jewish. But she said, no. Your God, to Naomi, my God. I want in. Your God is my God. I have reverence for him. I fear him. I love him. Let Rahab, let Ruth... Let all who fear the Lord give thanks, for he is good. Ezra six twenty one, The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord of God, Israel, ate the Passover. So we see here in a passage in Ezra that God made available all who were far off. Think about Galatians 3.28. Now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's us. We as Gentiles get to be included in the body of Christ because we've been grafted in. God has made a way for us. And so we see this call, this plea to these Three different groups, but in the end, it's all whom God is calling. Our second section, verses 5 through 18, we're going to see God's personal loving kindness. So the author, the psalmist, has given this plea and this call in verses 1 through 4, but then he's going to turn and he's going to share what this loving kindness of the Lord has looked like in his own life. He says, From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Wow. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me in a large place. Does that sound familiar at all? Remember Psalm 40? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction set my feet on a firm rock. I love that word picture from Psalm 40, and even the one we see here, that the psalmist has Petition to the Lord, has cried out in distress, Lord, help me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just had a moment in life, Lord, I need you, and I need you bad, and you just cry out. And Psalm 40 says that the Lord inclined to me. You get this image of he's leaning in, and he's hearing this cry, this plea, this, this distress, and he provides this rescue. And he lifts the author, he lifts the believer up, out, and sets him on a firm rock. Now, I actually reached out to Matt a little bit on this, and we were talking about this verse in particular, about some of the original Hebrew and what all it could represent and what all it could mean. And we see in verse 5 that a, a literal translation would say that God answered from a huge expanse, or a big space. But your Bible probably has some words that are supplied, that he brought me into a spacious place, the NIV says. Um, I think the ESV says, the Lord set me free. Um, He brought me into a wide open place, is what the NET translates it as. And so I think that we could look at this particular verse a couple different ways. We might look at it as though... God answered the psalmist from where God is, external to creation, that he inserted himself, even though he is outside of creation, in the huge expanse, bigger than the universe. God heard the plea of this believer, inserts himself, transplants, and provides safety. The author could be saying, The Lord has heard me from where he is in this huge expanse, in this large space. Or, as many of the other translations say, maybe this is about the Lord hearing this plea and picking the psalmist up, rescuing him, and setting him in a large space protected from the enemies, protecting from those who were breathing down his neck in his moment of stress. And either is fine. Either works. We've all been there. We've all had the God of the universe who is immeasurable... Hear our personal, intimate plea and connect with us and rescue us. And at the same time, we've all been in a space where we've cried out to the Lord and he has set us in a large space that gave us some breathing room, that gave us a chance to catch our breath from whatever it was that was pressuring us. It could have been influences from the outside world. It could have been stuff going on inside. And he gave us respite for a moment. And then look at verses 6 through 9. The psalmist shifts to this very personal tone with kind of an interesting rhythm. In verses 6 and 7, we see these two-line statements that we've talked about. But verses 8 and 9 are a little bit more direct and punctuated, similar to verses 2, 3, and 4. And we might even say that there's even a connection between 6 and 8 and 7 and 9. Look at this. Look how personal this is. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then look at, he says in verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Verse 7, The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall look with satisfaction on those who hate me. And what he says in 9, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in In princes. This group of verses here clearly reveals the futility in trusting the corrupt, mere mortal men for protection. Right? I mean, how futile is it to look to other people for help? How often do we do that in society today? We just got through elections. Just think how many non-believers and, unfortunately, how many believers were voting based on protection. Who were hoping, who were crying out, thinking that other political figures would be able to somehow provide relief, to provide respite, to fix the distress that people are finding themselves in. The psalmist here says, Why would you trust in princes? They're going to let you down. Why would you trust in kings? And these verses serve as a prelude, if you will, to verses 10 through 14. And there's this sort of progressive emphasis that begins in verses 10 through 13. Look at what he says. There's both this image and urgency that we can feel in the words of this this song. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely Cut them off. So I like to break this down, me personally, when I'm kind of looking at these, and maybe this has some merit, maybe it doesn't. I call these parts A and B, right? All the nations surrounded me. That's his first statement. We call that part A. And then he says, In the name of the Lord I will surely cut them down. We'll call that part B. How about that? But look at verse 11. They surrounded me, A. Yes, they surrounded me. We get another A, right? A repeat. But then he says in verse 11, In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them down. Part B. Watch what he does in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. We'll call that A. They were extinguished like a fire of thorns. In other words, they were squelched quickly by the Lord. That's something totally new, isn't it? We'll call that C. C. And then, at the end, in the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them down. He comes back to B. Isn't that an interesting kind of rhythm that he breaks there? He's got this kind of dual statements. And then he gets there and he makes three in verse 12. And he gives us a third part and kind of comes back. Just kind of interesting, you know? And then you get to verse 13. And I call this sort of the climax of this, right? The accusation. We talked about how his attention will change And be redirected. Look at what he does in verse 13. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. You pushed me. He redirects his attention to his enemies. You were working against me. And that's that contrasting parallelism. But the Lord helped me. Same basic basic truth that's highlighted there. He's in distress, he's got problems. He's being oppressed, he's being persecuted, he's being attacked. But the Lord helped him. And in verse 14, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He's been rescued from the princes of these nations who can't be trusted, from the enemies that are surrounding him like bees, from enemies trying to push him over but the Lord has helped him. Isn't that great? Now, section three. We're going to see a response to the Lord's goodness and loving kindness. Remember, verses one through four. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. That's the plea. That's the call that the psalmist has offered up. That's his underlying Pointed through all this. And what we're going to see here is that he's going to give three ways that God is lifted up for his goodness and loving kindness. Look at verse 15. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So he says that the joyful shouting in the tents of righteousness is a response to the Lord's loving kindness and goodness. And in verse 16, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. It's valiant. When this term valiant or valiantly is used elsewhere in Scripture, oftentimes it's in a military sense. And so the second way that the Lord is lifted up, and he's given praise And thanks for his goodness and loving kindness is the fact that his hand is exalted. Verse 17, I shall not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. So the third way is that the author is going to tell of the works of the Lord because the Lord has saved him. And of course, we can understand this to be a natural salvation. We'll get to this sort of almost more prophetic and spiritual salvation. But he's talking about a natural salvation right now. These enemies were at my back. They were pushing me over. They were attacking me. They were oppressing me. These princes that I can't put any trust in. And the Lord protected me. He saved me. And so that's the third way we see, at least from this author. And look at verse 18. This is interesting. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Wow. Wow. You know, we get a reminder here that the author recognizes this truth, and he recognizes this character and the nature of God, that God is sovereign, and he may choose to use natural circumstances to discipline us. Yes, you heard that right. God is sovereign, and he may use natural circumstances to discipline us. E. But you know what else the author knows? He knows that even the Lord's discipline is an act of goodness, kindness, and love by the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews. Keep your finger in Psalm 18, but turn with me to Hebrews 12, if you would. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Huh. You know that Deuteronomy 8, 5 says, Just as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man that you discipline, O Lord, and teach from your law. Turn to Psalm 119, since it's close to 118. 119.75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Ooh. And Proverbs three, eleven and twelve says, Do not reject the discipline of the Lord, and do not loathe his rebuke, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, as does a father, the son in whom he delights. And so we see this twofold praise, even though it's kind of disguised, we see this twofold praise there in verse 18, that the Lord has not given this man over to death. Certainly worthy of a praise, right? I mean, that's great. He has saved him. But also this praise that the Lord has used these circumstances for discipline, and that the author recognizes that, and he knows that. How often are we willing to view our current circumstances and trials as possibly the Lord's discipline of our lives. You know, we can't say that categorically absolutely that every single trial that we go through is the Lord's discipline, but we know that he will certainly use it. But there are times there are times where we are going through something and it's a result of something we've done or our attitude or something that the Lord needs to change, correct, or rebuke in us, right? I had a bad week last week. Seriously, last week was not good. And I reached out to Michael, and we were just chatting, and he, he was very compassionate, and he was sympathetic, and he understood and said, yeah, it's tough. I had another text exchange with Matt, and he said, well, what are you doing wrong? I'm paraphrasing it's quite a bit of back and forth. But Matt said, you know, when stuff like that's going on in my life, the very first thing that he does is he begins to take an audit and kind of go, all right, what have I done in this situation to warrant these kinds of events? So the Lord used a brother for some harsh love and a rebuke. And it reminded me, why don't I do a little bit of an audit? Why don't I take an inventory of what my life has been like, what my attitude has been like, my actions? And is there culpability on my part for the situation that I'm finding myself in last week? Is the Lord trying to get my attention and correct me because of some things that I have done or a perspective that I've hold, held that is not godly? or It's not of him think he was trying to get my attention last week you know it didn't really matter what I tried to do what I tried to plan I just kept getting blindsided by all this other stuff and I was like I was literally getting to the point where I was broken I was on my knees like what gives Lord I give up you win so thank you our fourth section God's loving kindness will be seen through a future Messiah. Verses 19 through 27. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee for thou hast answered me and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Oh, boy, a lot of imagery there, isn't there? Some word pictures. So most commentators, most commentaries, generally agree that these verses probably have a dual meaning. You can see that. We have the psalmist who is continuing to describe the deliverance that he has experienced from the Lord. Yet at the same time, we're beginning to get a picture of who Jesus is And how he will come to deliver us all. So as we look at this section, we're going to look at sort of the immediate that the psalmist probably has in mind. And then we're going to look at the future or the prophetic. So in verses 19 through 21, the psalmist begins with this petition. He wants to enter the gates of righteousness. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, that the righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. So the immediate for him is that he wants to enter what we call the gates of justice. Another definition of the gates of righteousness would be gates of justice. It would be the entrance to the king's palace. You know that recently, as we've been looking at Solomon's life, we've talked about how Solomon and King David and others sat in their palace in part, to judge Israel, to judge those high cases that needed the wisdom of the Lord. And so, the term, gates of righteousness, is somewhat synonymous with gates of justice, and the psalmist is excited about entering into the just king's palace. And the reason he's excited about this is he's been vindicated by the Lord. And he's enthusiastically desiring to enter the gates of justice. Now the prophetic, of course, is that the gate will become God himself. We know that. The gate of righteousness will become the Messiah. We get to enter God's palace through Jesus who establishes our righteousness. You guys know that the New Testament says he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have received through Christ Jesus the righteousness of God, not because of anything that we have done, not because we have earned it, but because Jesus died, took on our sin in our place. And so the psalmist recognizes that God has become his salvation. We recognize that Jesus has made us saved. We have our salvation in Jesus. I will give thanks to you, Lord, for you have answered me, the psalmist says. This is true of us as well. God has answered our plea. When we got down on our knees, whether whether physically or Symbolically, and we ask the Lord to come into our hearts, He heard our prayer. He answered our plea. And we have been given His righteousness. In verse 22, the stone the builders rejected. This is the chief cornerstone, it says. Now you guys probably know this, but the builders would always pick the most true, most straight stone that they could find and they would set that on the corner because you get a stone that's true and perfect in this direction and true and perfect in this direction and going up. You set that on the corner and that sets your trajectory for that wall. That sets your trajectory for that wall. That sets your trajectory going up. That way you don't end up having you know, a rhombus of a building You don't have a leaning tower of Pisa coming over. It is the best, most pure, truest stone that they could find, and they set that on the corner to establish the entire foundation. And so the immediate context here is that the psalmist is likely using this as a self-reference. This is probably how he saw himself, that he was rejected, But the Lord chose him. He was rejected, but God saved him. Of course, the prophetic, the New Testament reveals that Jesus became the ultimate cornerstone that the builders rejected, right? Turn to Acts 4.11. All three Gospels record Jesus citing this Psalm 118 passage. And he did it after the crowds welcomed him into the city in the triumphal entry. And they were praising him, and they were citing the verses that we have yet to get to in Psalm 118. And they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, save us. All these great references to Psalm 118. And Jesus challenged them and said, Do you know what you're saying? And Jesus uses the reference to the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. And so we have several references in the New Testament. So Acts 4:11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. Turn to Ephesians two twenty. Ephesians two, verse twenty. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word And to this doom they are also appointed. So we see Peter here, referencing Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, about this chief cornerstone that was rejected by men, but chosen by God to be the first piece of God's foundation. And I love verse 23 back in Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Obviously, the immediate would be that God delivered the psalmist from his military oppression that he was experiencing. God vindicated the psalmist before his enemies. He extinguished them, he said. They were like bees, and they were pushing him over, but he extinguished them. And this is not something that mankind can accomplish, right? The psalmist recognizes that. He already said that trusting in mere mortal men is futile. And he says in verse 23, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Only God can do this. And of course, the prophetic, the future. Jesus was rejected and despised by his own whom he came to save. John says that he was not recognized, he was not accepted by his own whom he came to save. Think about that. The religious leaders accused him of blasphemy. They rejected him. The Romans rejected him. They accused him of stirring up a revolt and a riot. And the crowds rejected him because they chose Barabbas, who they thought was a better... Rebel. Those three parties right there, rejected by men, but lifted up on a cross, put in a grave, and walking three days later because God makes him the cornerstone. Rejected by all of mankind, but praised by the Lord. He was vindicated. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You guys have heard this. You've probably sung these songs, right? Even as you read this verse, you're, you're, you're thinking the melody in your head. Well, you know, in the immediate, every day has been made by the Lord, right? Okay, so we have this very general sense that every day has been made, and every day is to be celebrated. But the psalmist would have understood this or meant this to be the day that he had deliverance, the day that the Lord delivered him. That's what he's got in mind when he writes this. Of course, a a general call to rejoice because God has made every day is great. But more specifically, the day that the Lord delivered this author is the day that he is rejoicing in. This is the day that God gave me victory over my enemies. Now the prophetic... This is the day God vindicated Jesus in the eyes of men. He was despised, rejected by men. He rose and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. This is the day that God has granted you and me salvation in Christ Jesus. The day the Lord has made is the day that we have been saved. And that is worthy of rejoicing. And so... Maybe a reminder for us is that we shouldn't just merely wake up and say, Thank you, Lord, for waking me up today. Not a wrong prayer, not a bad prayer, and not inappropriate by any means. But maybe it's just a little incomplete. You know, maybe it should say... Thank you, Lord, that this is another day in which I get to walk in the reality of your salvation. Thank you for giving me your righteousness today. Thank you for vindicating me today before those who persecute me or before those who don't understand my faith. I will rejoice and be glad in those truths today. Nothing wrong with simply saying, Lord, thanks for waking me up on the green side of the grass. But more specifically, Lord, thank you for vindicating me. Thank you for the salvation that I have in only you. Thank you for granting me your righteousness. This is the day that you've created, and I will rejoice in that. And then in verses 25 through 27, he is celebrating the Lord's deliverance. So the literal... This is both a petition and a continuation of praise for God's deliverance. Look at verses 25 to 27. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. God has given his people Light. Light is often a metaphor in Scripture for deliverance. Psalm thirty seven six says, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Psalm ninety seven eleven. Light is sown for the righteous. Micah seven eight. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So we see that in a literal and in, a, uh, in an immediate sense, the author is praising the Lord for giving them light, because light often represents deliverance. And he calls for a sacrifice to be bound to the altar and taken up and offered as praise and thanksgiving. But the prophetic, the future, these are the scriptures that the crowds chanted at the triumphal entry, right? They chanted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And look at how this is fulfilled in Jesus. John says that Jesus was the light and the light of men. In him was life, and that life was the light of all men. 1 John But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins. Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what we see here is while the author is thinking about deliverance, Himself, that the Lord has provided, we see in a prophetic sense that the light becomes Jesus himself. He becomes the sacrificial offering that gets bound and taken to the altar, which was the cross. And he becomes the light to all men. And so then our last couple of verses, in verses 28 and 29, we get a, re- a reiteration of the call To thank God for his goodness. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. He says in verse 28. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. So the psalmist comes back with this very personal declaration again. Remember how we saw that earlier? Where... He spoke in verse 5 about the Lord hearing his plea and his call and in his time of distress and answering him. And then he turns and he says, you are my God. My God delivered me. I can't trust in men. Here, look at how he turns his attention. You are my God and I give you thanks. You are my God. I extol or I exalt you. Such a personal embracing of the relationship and the way that God knows him. Intricately. And in verse 29, give thanks to the Lord just the way he began the song. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. What a great bookend, right? I mean, just think about how you're instructed to write papers and, and uh, position summaries in school. You know, you start with your point and then you defend it and then you conclude it and you come back. Look at these great, beautiful bookends. The Lord is good. He is to be praised. His loving kindness, his covenant loyalty is everlasting. It never ends. God is still good today and every day. His kindness is everlasting. He is worthy of our praise. Now, we may say, we don't have the same kind of military struggles that this author had. We're not fighting against nations. And we don't have nations surrounding us and warring against us personally. No. But we do fight a battle, don't we? We might fight a battle that is not flesh and blood, but is spirit. And we do have people in our lives who come against us at times. And we do need the Lord's deliverance from circumstances. We've been delivered from our sin once and for all. And we have salvation in the Lord's righteousness. But every day we have these struggles that we need him to pick us up out of the miry clay and set us on that firm rock. In that big expanse, that space where we can take a breath, find some respite, and think on his goodness. He's faithful to res- rescue us. He's faithful to give us rest. And he's faithful to extinguish the fires around us. And most importantly, he became the gates of justice for us. We get to enter his throne room. We have access to the Holy of Holies by his righteousness. And if we think about our message last week. We have vindication when we stand before him face to face, and he says, welcome home, son. Welcome home, my daughter. What a great truth. He is worthy of praise, and he is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen.